Good evening, everybody. Welcome uh, to the Calvary Center. Uh, looking around, I see most of the faces I know here, but it looks like we have a few visitors. Uh, we're very happy to have you here this evening. Um, and this evening, uh, we are having a talk by Dr. Kathleen Ravielli on uh, contraception and from a medical standpoint, from the standpoint of what it does to your body uh, and what it can do to a marriage. Um, and I just encourage you to open your minds and open your hearts and listen to what she has to say. If you have questions, if we have time, I'm sure she'll take them. And trust me, she can take them. Right? <laughs> if you want to ask questions, you ask away. Right? You ask away. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us tonight. Bless this gathering. Bless our speaker. Bless all of those people who live in relationships, striving to be open to life, striving to be open to beauty and mystery of sexuality within their marriages. We ask you to bless all those couples, especially all those couples throughout the world who really struggle to live the church's teaching on contraception, uh, who struggle to be open to life, who worry about their future, who worry they'll have too many children or that their marriage will be harmed. We pray in a special way this evening for all those couples who have uh, divided positions where perhaps um, the wife or the husband is ready to try natural family planning, but their partner is not. We pray for an enlightening of their hearts and spirit of understanding to come upon them. We pray in a special way this evening also for all of those people, especially throughout our campus, who might have their hearts entirely closed uh, to the truth and beauty of sexuality, um, who are unwilling to understand, unwilling to listen to a contrary position on what they might believe about contraception. We pray that our hearts will be filled with great love and that we will seek always to try to draw people to you and to bring them closer to your will. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Well, I'm Dr. Kathleen Raviel. I'm a, a board-certified OBGYN. I'm actually in practice on the east side of Atlanta doing gynecology only at this point. Uh, I've been in private practice for 30 years in the Atlanta area. About 25 years ago, I had a conversation with a priest like Father Allen, and I asked him some questions about what my practice was, what I was doing for a living. And the things that I had taken for granted for so many years, because everybody was doing it, uh, prescribing oral contraceptives, fitting people for IUDs, sterilizing women, sending their husbands off to be sterilized, I found out I was doing the wrong thing. And the wonderful thing was, I realized that he was telling me the truth, that this was the truth. I'd been looking for the truth. And so I came back from my pilgrimage and I left the practice that I was in. I was in practice in Snellville with four other of my best friends and I went into solo practice. So at first I told women, I don't prescribe contraception because I'm Catholic. But as I started reviewing literature with a different pair of eyes, there are very good medical reasons to not be prescribing contraception. And then I was asked this year uh, to give a talk on the wounds of contraception at the National Catholic Medical Association that was held in Philadelphia in October. We had about 600 Catholic doctors and 
and nurse practitioners and PAs and priests and attendants. We were at the hotel where all the bishops had been staying for the Holy Father's visit. We were there the week after his visit, so a lot of graces. So I'm going to present that talk to you now. And with each one of the complications that you see with contraception, I've got the medical references because it is all in the medical literature. It often is not in the OBGYN literature, though. So first we're going to talk about oral contraceptives. Oral contraceptives are the most common form of birth control in the United States. Uh, it's estimated that 17% of women between the ages of 15 and 44 are current users of birth control pills. And more than 10 million women in the U.S. and 100 million women worldwide are using birth control pills. 80% of women in the developed nations have been on oral contraceptives, which also poses a problem when you're doing a scientific study, looking at long-term effects, because if 80% of the population has been on it, it's hard to find a control group that has never been exposed to the pill. In obstetrics and gynecology in 2015, on the 50th anniversary of the birth control pill, they stated that contraception is fundamental to a woman's ability to achieve equality and realize her full social, economic, and intellectual potential. The feminist movement was about the right for women to vote, to get an education, and to own property. In fact, I grew up in the home of women's rights in Seneca Falls, New York, with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they were not about contraception. Contraception has always been, however, about population control, eugenics, and sexual freedom. Let me give you a little bit of the history of, of oral contraceptives. First of all, it was discovered in 1937 that progesterone, a female hormone, had certain effects on the lining of the uterus, had to do with support of pregnancy and all that. They isolated progesterone from Mexican yams in the 1940s, and in 1951, the first synthetic progestogen was produced. In 1960, the Food and Drug Administration approved the pill. In 1963, the first oral contraceptive was put on the drug market, and it, by 1965, it had become the number one form of birth control in the United States. Just eight years later, in 1973, abortion was legalized on demand in the U.S. because 40% of unplanned pregnancies were occurring on contraceptives. By the late 1970s, the FDA mandated a warning on oral contraceptives that they carried an increased risk of cancer and blood clots. This is the late 1970s, and any women who have ever gone to the doctor and been put on the pill, I'm sure you were not told any of this, that even dating back to when the pill was uh, first on the market, it carried these risks. The primary purpose of the birth control pill was to prevent pregnancy. However, it's prescribed for a lot of secondary uses. Number one, women who have heavy periods, irregular periods, they don't have periods at all. Women who have painful periods with endometriosis women who have irregular cycles because of a condition called polycystic ovary syndrome, which affects about 7% of women. Women who have terrible pain with their periods, women who have facial acne, women who suffer from PMS, premenstrual syndrome, all these are other reasons the pills are used. Well, what's in the pill? The pill today 
contains 10 to 40 micrograms of synthetic estrogen called ethanol estradiol, plus it contains a synthetic progestogen. The first generation of progesterones that came out were norethindrone. The reason I'm telling you this, I'll show you in a minute. The second generation was levonorgestrel. The third generation were desogestrel and justidine. And the fourth generation was drospirinone. So remember, first generation, second generation, third generation, fourth generation. How do birth control pills work? First, they prevent ovulation by suppressing the production of luteinizing hormone in your pituitary gland. They also thicken cervical mucus to prevent sperm entry. And most importantly, they thin the lining of the uterus. Actually, I should use my pointer instead of pointing it to myself. <laughs> okay, they thin the lining of the uterus here so that if the woman should conceive, the blastocyst, which is the stage the baby's at and arrives in the uterus, would not be able to successfully implant because the lining of the uterus is too thin. This is the uterus here. This is the cervix where you, they make the mucus and where we do pap smears. This is the fallopian tube off the uterus on each side with a very narrow, delicate channel in it. And these are the ovaries on each side. When a little girl is born, she has approximately half a million eggs in each ovary. She doesn't make any more. And at birth, a lot of them die off. But then once you enter puberty, those eggs are maturing all the time. But every month, you usually just ovulate one egg, unless you have a family history of fraternal twins. Well, there are a lot of side effects to birth control pills. In fact, if you look in the physician desk reference, there are about 51. I hit the high points. First of all, they cause weight gain. <coughs> They decrease sexual desire. They cause a chronic vaginal discharge. The periods are lighter, which is a benefit because you're having an effect of the hormones. They cause breast lumps and breast pain. They raise the woman's blood pressure, and they can actually cause acne when often they are used to treat acne. Other common side effects are breakthrough bleeding, nausea and headaches, urinary tract infections, depression. About a third of women have a low-grade depression on birth control pills and even gum inflammation. I used to work a free clinic out in Gwinnett County, and when I had a change of heart and stopped prescribing birth control pills, I was seeing patients in the clinic, I said, I don't want to see anybody for birth control pills. Well, what, a, what an eye-opener, because the women I was seeing were all the women who were on birth control pills coming in with breast lumps. When I just took that segment, I couldn't believe how many women were on birth control pills coming in complaining of breast lumps. But there are some very serious side effects from the pill. Now to explain to you what the risk is of having some of these side effects, you should understand a couple of things. First of all, there's relative risk, and then there's also odds ratio. So some of the studies talk about relative risk, and some of them talk about odds ratio. Relative risk, or RR, is the probability of an event occurring in, a, in an exposed group versus an unexposed group. And this is generally applied to what are called randomized controlled studies and cohort studies. In other words, you take women and you randomize them into the two groups. Odds ratio is the odds of a disease among exposed individuals divided by the odds of disease among the unexposed individuals. And it's used in what are called case control studies. First, we're going to talk about stroke and heart attack on oral contraceptives. 
This is a, a quote from the National Vital Statistics Report of 2010. Ischemic heart disease and stroke are the leading cause of death for women in the U.S. and worldwide, accounting for 30% of all deaths. The risk of ischemic stroke is twice if you're on birth control pills as compared to not on birth control pills. And the risk of a heart attack is 7.6969 times higher in high-dose estrogen and 2.93 higher in lower estrogen formulations. I was in the emergency room one night because I was on call for the emergency room and I saw a patient, she wasn't my patient, but she came into the emergency room and they got a GYN consult. Well, she was in with a GYN problem, but she also had just been discharged from the hospital having had a heart attack at age 32. And I saw she was on birth control pills. And I said, did the cardiologist say anything to you about the birth control pills? And he, she said, yeah, he said I could stay on the birth control pills. I said, the birth control pill is what caused your heart attack. 32-year-old women do not have heart attacks. What about the risk of stroke? Two, there is a two-fold increased risk of ischemic stroke on birth control pills as compared with non-users. Now, during pregnancy and postpartum, after you have a baby, there is a three-fold to eight-fold risk of ischemic stroke. That's in the six-week postpartum period. Women may be on birth control pills for many, many years. So to say, well, it's safer to be on birth control pills than it is to have a baby, it's nine months pregnancy, six weeks postpartum, you really can't compare the two. So this, this, is, this in the mind of the OBGYN community justifies the use of oral contraceptives despite this risk. And as I say, women are pregnant for nine months and postpartum for six years. I've seen women who've been on birth control pills straight sometimes for 20 years. So back to myocardial infarction, the relative risk of oral contraceptives users versus non-users is 7.69 with higher dose estrogen. A relative risk where there is no risk would be one. So the risk being on oral contraceptives is 7.69. The relative risk is 2.93 for oral contraceptive users versus non-users with a lower dose estrogen. And this was from a large review that was actually published in our main journal of obstetrics and gynecology in 2013 on the risk of MI, heart attack, with birth control pills. Now, it does vary. The risk of a heart attack also depends on which progesterone the birth control pill contains. The second generation progestogens, which is levonorgestrel, has an odds ratio of 2.5 increased risk of, being, of having a heart attack. Third generation actually is a little bit safer the odds ratio is only 1.3 uh, with desogestrel and gestadine. So norethindrome and levonorgestrel have an increased risk coupled with estrogen for heart attack. And uh, there are some women who actually have an increased risk of clots because of a genetic mutation that they have. And they didn't find any difference actually whether or not you had that uh, mutation. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001. Now what about blood clots traveling other places, like to your lungs? This was a large Danish cohort study that was published in the British Medical Journal. They looked at women between 2001 and 2010. 
the United States does not have any capacity to do the studies that some of the European countries can do because they register everybody for everything. And they track them when they go in the emergency room, they track them when they fill a prescription, they track them when they have a baby, they track them when, they, when, they, when they're born and when they die. So what they did was they did a linkage between four national Danish registries for prescriptions, discharge diagnosis from the hospital, surgical codes, births and abortions with, and every person in Denmark has a 10-digit unique identifier, like our social security number. They studied all women ages 15 to 44 who did not have heart disease or cancer for a total of 10.4 million women years studied and 3.3 million women years of women on birth control pills. They found that those who were not using birth control pills had a risk of a blood clot or a pulmonary embolus where a clot traveled to the lung of 3.01 per 10,000 women years. If you were on birth control pills, your risk went up to 6.29 per 10,000 women years. It improved with lower doses of estrogen and longer duration of use, and it was actually this complication, unlike with a heart attack, was higher risk for the third and fourth generation progestogen. There was no increased risk with progesterone-only oral contraceptives or the progestin IUD, the Marina. Then there was a second Danish cohort study that looked at the relative risk of blood clots or pulmonary emboli with various generations of progestogens, comparing them to non-users. And you could see that there was a progressive increase in the relative risk with between first generation, which was still you know 2.9 times what the um, non-user was, with the second generation 6.6, third generation 6.2, fourth generation 6.4. Oh, this is second generation, third generation. These were the fourth generations. Actually, these two are both fourth. Then there was a third Danish cohort study that looked at the incidence of blood clots and pulmonary emboli. They found, they found that 2.1 risk, uh, 2.1 women per 10,000 women years in non-users had one of these conditions. And again, they saw especially, it varied actually with the product that they were using. Uh, a levonorgestrel oral contraceptive, which was the second generation, had 2.9 times the risk. Patches, the, the ortho ever patch, 7.9 times the risk. This drug should have been taken off the market several years ago. There were multiple cases of women with pulmonary emboli on these patches. And what, in, what instead happened was the drug companies are very, have lots of money, so they just settled the lawsuits. They actually, I kept it, they sent a letter to all of us OBGYNs explaining how you could explain this to patients that it really wasn't so bad being on the patches with this kind of risk of getting a pulmonary embolus. The other thing too is the vaginal ring also has a very high incidence of pulmonary embolus. Um, and there was an article in Vanity Fair in early 2014 about several prominent women who had died of blood clots due to the vaginal ring contraceptive. Uh, the uh, implantin, one of the sub-Q implants, there's only a slightly increased risk, 0.4, 40%. Levonorgestrel uh, actually had a protective effect. They had less of a chance of a pulmonary embolus. Can't explain that. Now let's compare this to maybe some other drugs. There was a drug, which you won't remember, uh, called Vioxx which was taken off the United States market in 2004. 
Vioxx was a COX-2 selective non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like Advil, except this was a COX-2 selective non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. It was approved by the FDA in 1999. Uh, it underwent a study in 1999 called the VIGOR study, the Vioxx GI Outcomes Research Study. And they found in that study that there was a fourfold increased risk of heart attack over the use of naproxen, anaprox, naproxen, resulting in 88,000 to 140,000 cases of serious heart disease from the drug. When this drug came out, they were promoting, it was really just supposed to be for like people with rheumatoid arthritis, really bad arthritis. They promoted everybody who had an ache or pain. And then there was another trial called the Approved Trial in 2004, which showed a relative risk, almost double, of heart attack or stroke over placebo using Vioxx. It was voluntarily withdrawn from the market by the drug company in 2004, accounting for nearly $3 billion in sales per year. They took that drug off the market, and yet birth control pills who have very high risks relative to the general population of stroke and heart attack are on the market. Okay, what about birth control pills and cancer? Birth control pills were declared group one carcinogens by the World Health Organization in 2005. That was a higher classification from what they had previously declared from 1999. This is an unbiased committee that reviews all the world's literature on everything, whether it's asbestos or perfume or lately bacon and cold cuts and uh, determines, did you hear that? It increases your risk of cancer. Um, they determined whether there was an increased risk of cancer in something. They found that birth control pills had a 44% increased risk of breast cancer, 50% increased risk of liver cancer, and twice the risk of cervical cancer. And the cervical cancer, which you may know, we think many cervical cancers come from the human papillomavirus, it was not due to an increase in promiscuity. It was a direct effect of the drug on the cervical glands. It did, however, to be fair and balanced here, it did reduce the risk of endometrial cancer, cancer of the lining of the uterus, if the woman used it for a prolonged period of time, and that effect actually persisted for 15 years after the birth control pills were stopped. They also claim that ovarian cancer risk is reduced with longer duration of use, persists for at least 20 years after cessation of use. Well, what about premenopausal breast cancer and the use of birth control pills? This was published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2006. It was a meta-analysis of 23 retrospective studies of premenopausal women developing breast cancer while on or having been on oral contraceptives before their first full-term delivery. Now, what protects a woman from getting breast cancer is having her first full-term delivery before the age of 30. That's what the studies have shown. There are changes that go on in the breast over the course of the pregnancy. The first trimester, actually the woman's breast is more prone to cancer. When she gets up to 30, 32 weeks, it actually becomes more resistant to cancer. So what happens if you give hormones that affect the breast prior to having a baby? It increases your risk of developing cancer. And so this found a 44% increased risk of breast cancer as a result of exposure to the pill if you were on it before you had your first baby. 
And this was a study that was published out of a big group in Seattle, a big cancer group in Seattle, who looked at breast cancer risk and birth control pills. And they looked at the risk of triple negative breast cancer, which is a very difficult breast cancer to treat because it's not, it's not estrogen receptor positive, it's not progesterone receptor positive or HER positive, which are all targeted with various uh, treatments, but it's triple negative, so it's very difficult to treat. They looked at women 45 years of age or younger in relation to their lifestyle, their reproductive history, oral contraceptive use, and they included all primary invasive breast cancers in women's 20, women ages 20 to 45 in the Seattle Puget Sound area between 1983 and 1992 with complete data. So it was a big study. They found that if women used oral contraceptives for a year or more, they had a relative risk of two and a half, so two and a half times the risk of getting uh, breast cancer for all women ages 20 to 45 developing triple negative breast cancer, but not for other breast cancers. Oral contraceptive use for a year or more in women 40 and under carried an even higher risk of 4.2 of triple negative breast cancer, but not of other breast cancers. And this was published in a major cancer, cancer journal in 2009. Well, what about what um, World Health Organization said about cervical cancer? Uh, this is from eight case control studies of women with confirmed invasive cervical cancer and two studies of patients with an early carcinoma in situ. They found that 94% of patients with invasive cancer were positive for human papillomavirus, 72% with carcinoma in situ were positive for human papillomavirus, and 13% of the controls who were not on birth control pills were positive for HPV. They concluded that women who had uh, had used birth control pills fewer than five years did not have an increased risk of cancer. Used for five to nine years gave them almost a three times risk of getting uh, cervical cancer. And for 10 years or more, almost a four times risk for cervical cancer, even if they're no longer on oral contraceptives. Well, what did the, I'm a, I'm a member of the American College of OBGYN. Um, a fellow in the American College. Well, what was their response to this? Unintended pregnancy remains a major public health problem in the U.S. Access and cost issues are common reasons why women either do not use contraception or have gaps in use. A potential way to improve contraceptive access and use and possibly decrease unintended pregnancy rates is to allow over-the-counter access to oral contraceptives. Screening for cervical cancer or sexually transmitted infections is not medically required to provide hormonal contraception. That does not make sense. We don't have any other carcinogens that are sold over the counter at the drugstore. Okay, what about endometrial effects of the birth control pill? The, um, the ovaries are suppressed during oral contraceptive use, but there is a little variation whether you're normal body weight or whether you're overweight. And in this study that was published in Obstetrics and Gynecology, our major journal in 2010, they looked at uh, women who were consistent users of birth control pills, 150 of them, and of those, 2.7% ovulated. If they were inconsistent users, they were skipping pills, that was 13 of this group, uh, was 163, 38.5% ovulated. So if women are skipping pills, more often they're gonna be ovulating potentially getting pregnant with the baby not able to implant. When you compare them with women who um, 
are not using birth control pills at all. Of course, 66.7% of women ovulated. So this, is, um, this shows that overall, 11.6 women ovulate even though they're on birth control pills. And this is in our literature. I mean, a lot of women don't realize that this is going on and that there is a lack of endometrial support if they should get pregnant. Now, oral contraceptive pregnancy rates are less than 2% to 8% per year for clinical trials and the National Survey of Family Growth. And they said ovulation is not clinically relevant. The important clinical outcome for women using oral contraceptives is unintended pregnancy. But if you ovulate and you get pregnant, we are a people of life. And so you are ending a human life that you don't even realize has been created uh, if you're taking the pill and you're sexually active. So if you have 10 million oral contraceptive users in the US with a minimum of 2.7% of women ovulating per cycle, that would be 270,000 ovulations per month and a possible 5% risk of pregnancy. That cycle equals 13,500 human lives lost per cycle in the U.S. due to backup endometrial effect preventing implantation. Well, birth control pills and all the contraceptives, especially through the Affordable Care Act, are targeting teenagers. These are two of my granddaughters. First of all, one of the things they're targeting uh, teenagers with is the use of Depo-Provera. Depo-Provera was kept off the market for a long time in the U.S. because it causes breast cancer in beagle dogs. And finally, it was brought on the market. Uh, Depo-Provera is administered as a shot every three months of 150 milligrams of Depo-Provera, which actually works out very well with the public school schedule. The girl's off for three months during the summer, but she's in school the rest of the time. Depo-Provera has a lot of side effects. It causes irregular bleeding. It may make, make the girl not have a period at all. It causes weight gain, causes headaches, causes abdominal pain, causes fatigue, tiredness, definitely causes depression. Uh, progesterone can cause depression, hair loss, acne, and an increased risk of a sexually transmitted disease because the girl isn't worried about that. She is she's not going to get pregnant because of the depo. But they also have found that this drug causes osteoporosis, thinning of the bones, if it's used for more than two years. If the girl comes off of it, she probably will recover, but oftentimes girls are not on it for just two years. And after coming off Depo-Provera, it takes up to 18 months for your cycles to get back to being regular again. Under the Affordable Care Act, there's a provision for school-based clinics. And in the school-based clinics, According to uh, what was recommended by the Institute of Medicine, the things that are important for women's health are women, and they label them women, women ages 10 to 65. I don't know any 10-year-olds who are women, but women who are ages 10 to 65 should be counseled every year about sexually transmitted diseases, be counseled every year about HIV, be counseled every year about contraception, uh, and the, the way the school-based clinics are set up, parents wouldn't even know what their children were being told. So a lot of kids will be placed on oral contraceptives, Depo-Provera, the worst intrauterine devices, uh, or implants in the arm. And the, the mother and father may not even know they're on that. So what are long-acting reversible contraceptives? See, Depo-Provera is considered uh, uh, a uh, reversible contraceptive because you can choose every three months to um, not use it. 
Well, intrauterine devices are long-acting contraceptives. This is a this is a marketing picture in one of our journals uh, for Skylog, which is a type of progesterone-only IUD. And who is it appealing to? You guys. Here she is in school. This is her baby now. It's her book, book pad. And so they're promoting. Yeah, yes, that she's holding that so tenderly, like it's a baby carrier in front of her. But in it are her books. This is her baby right now. They're very clever with the marketing. So the levonorgestrel IUD, which Skyla is one of them, Marina is another one. They are put in and left in for up to five years. They're very expensive. They cost about $1,100, but they are free under the Affordable Care Act. All of our health care dollars are being spent for things like this. That's why insurance premiums went up. It has a 1% uh, pregnancy rate, even though the IUD is in. It has an 80% continuation rate because the woman doesn't have any control over it. I saw a patient a couple weeks ago in the office who came in because uh, she had a Marina IUD in. She wanted it out because she wanted to have a baby. And uh, the OBGYN who put it in wouldn't take it out. Said, no, 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 you haven't had it in long enough. Leave it in. Well, when she came in to see me, the string for the IUD was no longer visible to be able to pull it out. She's going to have to have a surgical procedure to remove the IUD. It primarily works by thinning the lining of the uterus to prevent implantation. It also may thicken cervical mucus, but it causes a foreign body response. The baby can't implant that there's a lot of inflammation inside the uterus. Uh, some women actually have an allergic reaction to the IUD. It can cause migraine headaches, irregular bleeding for up to six months. That's always lots of fun. Pelvic cramping and depression. Serious side effects are pelvic inflammatory disease, a pelvic infection leading to permanent sterility. You can perforate the uterus when you're putting the IUD in. It can get tangled up in the bowel and all kinds of other things. These things are highest risk the first three weeks after insertion. There have been over 70,000 complaints to the Food and Drug Administration since this IUD came out. And I saw another woman in my office who came in. She had just come out of the hospital after having a terrible pelvic infection with a Marina IUD in. She had three children. She had gone to the OB that put it in and asked him to take it out a year before. And he said, nope, we've only had it in two years. Just leave it in. She had no control over it. So she said, okay. So she went back. Um, about six months later, uh, a year later, she came back in with pelvic pain, fever, discharge. She had a rip-roaring pelvic infection due to the IUD and she had uh, bilateral abscesses in her tubes. And then the OBGYN told her, well, now we have to do a hysterectomy on Now, she was in the hospital for about three weeks on antibiotics. She came in to see me, and I got a repeat ultrasound, and actually the two ovarian abscesses were going away. And I said, well, let's, let's wait and see what happens, but I don't think you'll ever be able to get pregnant again because once you get abscesses in the tubes, usually that's it. My golly, she came in six months ago, pregnant, in the right place. I said, that was a miracle. She will never have another IUD. <laughs> there are also copper IUDs that have been on the market since 1988. They can be used for up to 10 years. They release copper ions, uh, which enhances a foreign body response. In other words, the baby might get down to the uterus, but there's a foreign body there, uh, and the baby would not be able to implant. It's also toxic to sperm, but I wouldn't count on that as the main reason that we don't get pregnant. It decreases the rate of fertilization and lowers the chance, this is what they say, lowers the chance of survival of the embryo. They say that. 
no way to determine the rate of conception because there's no test for early pregnancy before implantation. We don't know how many lives may be lost. It's also used as, quote, an emergency contraceptive up to seven days after intercourse. So you know if a woman comes in, she had intercourse during the fertile time, you put an IUD in a week later, you know, she would have already ovulated. So obviously if it's preventing pregnancy, it's because of the foreign body response preventing implantation. 2.1 million American women now use IUDs. <clears throat> and then we'll talk about the implantin. This is an implant that goes in the arm. It has a very low pregnancy rate of 0.1%. Again, women have no control over it. Uh, 25 to 31% of women report prolonged or frequent bleeding, uh, which is the most frequent reason they ask to get it taken out. 11.3% of women get it taken out in the first year. Um, sometimes they'll even put the woman on birth control pills to stop the bleeding. 15% uh, of women have headaches on it. 11.8% of women have uh, weight gain. 11.4% have acne, breast pain 10%, emotional liability 5.7%. It works by suppressing ovulation, thickening cervical mucus, and again, the endometrial effect that would prevent implantation. So how is contraception wounded marriage and the family? Those are three more of my grandchildren. Well, let's talk first about the, uh, oh, there is a wonderful YouTube video, I didn't see it here on the screen, called The Economics of Contraception by the Austin Institute. You know, if you want to do a Google search, Economics of Contraception by Austin Institute. It's a great little um, video, you know, from a standpoint that you wouldn't have thought of before about the effects of contraception on the relationship between men and women. But you know, God had a plan for marriage. He still does have a plan for marriage. That it's a permanent, faithful, exclusive relationship between a husband and a wife. It's directed towards your mutual sanctification. You know, I was married for 25 years before I found out I was supposed to be helping my husband get to heaven. <laughs> now, once you realize that, it changes a lot about how you ask your husband or your wife to do something. Can you please take the trash out? Could you please do this? Thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing this. It was, it was very enlightening to find that out, and I learned that from reading church documents. My husband and I had 15 minutes of marriage prep 41 years ago with uh, a priest at our college campus, and that was it. The only other thing we had for marriage prep was the example of our parents. Um, but it's also marriage is a sign of unity. It is that relationship, the relationship between the husband and wife is also that same relationship God wants to have with each of us. And of course, couples, when they become parents, definitely have to have unity. When, when your seven-year-old comes and says, can I go do this? You say, did you ask your mother? And mom already said no. You're going to say no. <laughs> but also, God's plan for children was that they come into a family with a mother and a father committed to each other for life because it is the right of a child to know both of their parents. Now, it isn't always possible. We know that sometimes it ends up in divorce. Sometimes a parent dies. But that is the ideal situation. And so much of the trouble we see today with gangs and other situations with uh, young men, especially getting into illegal activities, because they didn't have a dad to be their role model. 
Also, studies have shown that people are happier if they are married, unless they're like Father Alan, and he's married to Christ and his church. Um, but right now, we have actually more single adults in the U.S. than we ever have before. So it really is important to find a good spouse and get married and, and stick with it. In fact, studies have shown, too, that even if a marriage goes through a difficult time, if you hang in there, five years later, 75% of couples will say they're happily married. And you can look up a whole bunch of sociologic studies on marriage uh, in this great little book of Why Marriage Matters by the National Marriage Project in 2011, not a Catholic group, but their studies show that, number one, that people are happiest if they're a man and a woman married together, uh, if children are raised in that household, um, if, ch if couples have their first child in the first two years of life of their marriage, they're more likely to stay married. So this waiting for four years, six years to have a child, no. Insurance is having your baby the first two years. <laughs> so has, has contraception had an effect on marriage? It certainly has. In 1960, the divorce rate was in the U.S. was 2.2 per thousand couples per year compared to a marriage rate of 8.5 per thousand. A lot more people were getting married than getting divorced in any year. By 2009, the divorce rate was 3.5 per thousand couples compared to a marriage rate that went down to 6.8 per thousand. If somebody in the relationship gets sterilized, it doubles the risk of your divorce. This has been shown in sociologic studies. And I'll tell you, that was part of the way God was getting to me in my other practice because I would see, you know, the man, the husband and wife would have the boy and the girl. They were both working, had great jobs, had great cars, had a beautiful house. And one of them would get sterilized. And three years later, the wife would come in and they were going through a divorce. And almost invariably, whatever spouse had not been sterilized would remarry and have more children. So you think, wow, there's something to this. Also, the uh, the use of country, of course, the use of divorce, or the practice of divorce, has serious effects on children, regardless of how old the children are at the time their parents get divorced. Whether they're small children, whether they're adults, it has a serious effect on their children. And 60% of marriages right now in the U.S. Uh, are preceded by cohabitation, which is actually a marriage killer. You're much, you're going to have a higher divorce rate if you live together before you get married because you're not making the commitment you know you say i do you walk down the aisle you say i do till death do us part you're making a commitment move in you're saying well you know if any things get rough i'm out of here of course the whole uh, contraceptive movement has been that children should be planned and wanted well i'm sure that if somebody came up and said to you Guess what? You just won $2 million on the lottery. But you weren't planning on winning the lottery. And then would you say, sorry, I didn't plan that. So I don't want it. And children are worth a lot more to you than $2 million, believe me. Children have become objects rather than valued as gifts from God. I mean, children actually aren't owed to a couple of them. Children are a gift from God. So you have to remember. I remember delivering a patient once, and the husband said, Thank you, God. I think he was the only husband I have ever heard say that at the time of a delivery. But you can start practicing now. <laughs> um, say, thank you, God. 
And divorce carries an unexpected effect on children. We talk about that regardless of the age at which uh, divorce occurs. Infertility results actually from delaying childbearing due to contraceptive use. Now we talked about the IUDs can definitely damage your fertility, but some of it is because you've gotten older or other conditions have developed that you didn't know, like women can get endometriosis, which can damage your tubes also and keep you from getting pregnant. And women's fertility naturally declines as they get older. Women are most fertile in their 20s. So when you get married at 24 and you say, okay, well, I'm going to graduate school and then I'm going to work my way up the corporate ladder and then when I'm 37 or 38, then we'll start having children. You may not be able to. Women's fertility declines at 32. It takes a big dip at 35. So between 35 and 39, already 35% of women cannot get pregnant and have a baby. Their eggs are 35 years old. And between 40 and 44 or 45, only 35% of women can still get pregnant and have a baby. 65% no longer can. And fortunately, every once in a while, the secular media puts out that little fact. So what's going to heal the wounds of contraception? Natural family planning. <laughs> and Drs. John and Lynn Billings, who uh, developed the uh, Billings ovulation method, which is a mucosome method, uh, said that natural family planning strengthens married love and helps to establish families in peace and security. And I'll, I'll tell you, the relationship between couples when they're doing NFP is very different from what I used to see in couples who were using contraception. I'll give you an example. I had one couple I taught NFP to. They had like four children or something. They were going to use it actually to avoid pregnancy after that. She came in to me a few years later because she sees me as a patient, and she told me what had happened to her husband. Her husband was a fireman, and he had taken a couple of the boys out to ride altering vehicles one Sunday morning, and she got a phone call that he had had a terrible accident with a major head injury. He was unconscious. They had air flighted him to Grady. She got to Grady, they lived on the west side of town. She got to Grady, and they were telling her, it's gonna be a vegetable, you're not gonna to wanna to take care of him, he's gonna be bedridden, he'll never wake up, he'll never talk, he'll never walk, he'll never go back to work. She said, I don't care. You just get him better. So he actually regained consciousness after a few weeks, and she got him into Shepherd's Spinal Center. It was a miracle she got him into Shepherd's Spinal Center, but they got they arrived at Shepherd's Spinal Center, and the doctor said to her, he's never going to walk. She said, I don't care. I just want his sense of humor back. I'll take care of him. I just want to get him home. He walked out of Shepherd's Spinal Center on a walker. He's back as a firefighter. He's back as a firefighter. He's normal. And he has a sense of humor back. <laughs> I mean, this is a great testimony to the love that goes on between a husband and a wife. She trusted, even if he wasn't going to be normal, he was her husband, she was going to take care of him, and she got her husband back. It's beautiful. Well, there are lots of benefits to using natural family planning. I'll tell you, I did a rotating internship in OBGYN, I did four years of residency, I did two years of fellowship. It wasn't until I got into natural family planning that I understood things about women's fertility that I had not understood before. And even your regular OBGYN won't understand it, and even some of the um, reproductive endocrinologists don't understand it. It is so enlightening. It's also perfectly safe and healthy. There's nothing about NFP that's going to harm you in any way, and it fosters communication. Husbands and wives talk to each other about the most intimate parts of their lives because they're talking about their fertility every month. Uh, it also increases self-mastery. 
you know, if you could control yourself in the sexual sphere, you could control yourself in all different areas of your life, whether it's spending, drinking, browsing, anything. You can control yourself in that area. And couples who do NFP generally become very sharing and generous in life. They don't usually say, we're only having one child, or we're only having two children, because they view their children differently. They view them as gifts, and they see the beauty of every different little personality that comes into their family. And NFP doesn't go against any moral, ethical, or spiritual belief. Sometimes people think NFP means it's not for Protestants. But <laughs> it's for everybody. <laughs> when when uh, Pope Paul VI addressed Humani Vitae, he said to everyone of goodwill. He didn't say, okay, to the Catholic faithful. He said, everyone of goodwill. <laughs> and um, your fertility, you finally understand the holy time. This is, these are two children of one of my NFP couples, and she sent me this Christmas card. And I said, oh. That picture in a slide presentation, she gave me permission. I mean, such beautiful children. NFP uh, couples realize the awesomeness of the fertile time when they can become co creators with God. When you have a baby, you too have provided the body, and God provided the soul and the personality of that child. And you are creating a new image of God. When you look into a baby's face, you see the face of God. I had a, an NFP, not for Protestant couple, who learned NFP with me. And um, when after they'd been doing it for a few months and we were going through the charts, the husband told me, you know, when we started this, we were, oh, no, no, back up. He told me, when we got married, after we got married, because they didn't go through marriage prep, they didn't have any discussions about what their plans were, he said, I told her, after we got married, I didn't want to have any children. Can you imagine finding that out after you marry somebody? <laughs> well, she was devastated, and that's why she wanted to get off the pill. <laughs> because she was hoping that would change his mind. And um, so she said, now that I've been seeing her cycle come out every month, I'm thinking, you know, maybe we should have children. And a few months later, he called her up at work. She told me this later, and he said, you know what? What are we waiting for? We have jobs. We have a house. You know, we don't have great debt. Let's go ahead and start a family. So they had children that she would never have had if she'd stayed on the pill for 25 years. And also, sometimes people come to NFP from a natural standpoint. You know, we're so focused on the environment and green and recycling and organic. Why are we pouring synthetic chemicals into our lives? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. But natural family planning allows couples to respect the laws of nature, which actually God has written on their hearts. And a lot of people come, they may have been using contraception for a while, and they come and they say, you know what, we heard about this in Engaged Encounter, uh, we need to do this, or, or uh, uh, with our uh, sponsor couples. So in summary, hormonal contraceptives increase the risk of breast cancer, liver cancer, and cervical cancer. They increase the risk of blood clots and blood clots to the lung, pulmonary emboli, stroke, and heart attacks. They damage the relationship between men and women inside and outside of marriage. There is a loss of human life through the endometrial effects and therefore a de facto abortion that goes on in possibly 10% of cycles. The uh, contraception has redefined children as objects rather than gifts from God. And lastly, we didn't talk about this, a lot of women get put on birth control pills because of medical reasons. They have irregular cycles, they don't have periods, they have polycystic syndrome, they have cramps. In almost every case, there is another way to treat the problem without using birth control pills. 
For example, polycystic ovary syndrome, 7% of women have it. It causes uh, trouble with weight gain, acne, irregular periods. For years, we blamed it on the woman's ovaries. That's why it's called polycystic ovary syndrome. Well, an endocrinologist found a few years ago it's actually, in many cases, a pre-diabetic condition. Women who have PCOS, they eat something, their pancreas puts out a lot more insulin, and insulin makes you gain weight. The more insulin you get, the higher your weight goes up. And all that also throws off your ovaries. So we have found if you put women, women on uh, a drug that we use for diabetes, metformin, where you get, them, get their weight down by restricting carbohydrates, all those symptoms go away and we'll go back to regular cycles. So there are so many other ways when you don't just say, okay, you've got this problem, we're gonna cover it up with a pill, when you look for other ways to uh, treat it. And also with regard to blood clot, I had a patient come in a, maybe about five years ago, I remember her distinctly because of the way she presented the next year, and she was heavy and she had polycystic ovary syndrome. She came in, she said, I'd like to go on the pill. And I said, well, as you recall, when you called and made the appointment, I don't prescribe birth control pills, and I would not recommend that you use birth control pills for this problem. I can cycle you on progesterone every month, identically what your body uh, makes. So she said, okay, thank you. She left, went to another doctor. She came back the next year and she said, Dr. Abiel, you were right. I said, what was I right about? And she said, you told me you wouldn't recommend I go on the pill. Well, I went on the pill and three months later, I had a blood clot in my leg and I threw a blood clot to my lung. You were right, I shouldn't have gone on the pill. So these are real things that do happen uh, in the real world. And that's in some of the slides I took from the NFP program that I teach out of the Marquette College of Nursing. Okay, we'll end there and see if anybody has any questions. And if anybody has a personal question they want to come up and ask me afterwards, I'm more than happy to to stay, but yes. They increase the, the factors in your blood that coagulate the blood, the, the factors in your blood that would cause you to get a blood clot. I'm not a hematologist, so I can't go into all of it. <laughs> yes, Father. That's a very interesting question, Father. The question is, what happens to all those hormones or even any other drugs that people are taking for blood pressure or whatever? They go into the septic system, the, uh, you know, the sewer, um, that water gets filtered and processed at uh, water plants and gets sent back as water. Actually, the filtration systems in the, in the sewer plants do filter out those drugs, but some of those hormones with the, with the refuse go into the groundwater, and there have been some articles saying that it is affecting certain types of fish and things like that, especially in Europe, they're finding that. But I, I really can't say that in this country it's having an effect on men or women or anything else. Yes? Well, that's a great question. You know, what's the difference between NFP and contraception? Your goal is you want to avoid a pregnancy for a period of time. <coughs> well, it's, it all has to do with the means by which you achieve the end of avoiding a pregnancy. There, as you, as you read Theology of the Body, and the mystery of the relationship between men and women and what actually goes on during the marital act, Jesus said to us, that's why a man leaves his mother and father and clings to his wife, and the two become one body. So you become united body and soul to your spouse. And that's why you wait until you have a spouse. 
When you're using contraception, you are disrupting that union. You're engaging in the marital act, but you're blocking a natural consequence of that act if it's during the fertile time. And you know what? God is there during that act because he's the one who would decide that you're going to have a new life and create a new life. So if you're using contraception, you're playing God. You're saying, God, we know best. We should not have a baby right now. We're going to do this, but we're not going to let you act. Whereas with NFP, it's like a diet. You're saying, okay, we're not going to have another baby right now, so we're just not going to engage in the marijuana. So that's the difference. It's the, the means that are used to achieve the end. No, I, you know, I think, well, first of all, the church says it's up to the couple uh, on whether they should have more children. I think God, when you're doing what God wants you to do, he inspires you if he wants you to have another baby. So honestly, I don't think couples who are doing NFP can have that same contraceptive mentality that a couple who's using birth control pills. And the contraceptive mentality is really led to abortion. We have control over our fertility. Oops, we got pregnant. Okay, we got to get rid of this. We were not planning a baby now. We're going to get rid of this baby. So I really don't think that that can happen. Then there are some people who are providentialists who say, okay, whatever child you give us, God, that'll be great. But the church says we have to be responsible as parents. You know, we want to be able to provide. You don't have to provide a Georgia Tech education for your kids, but you have to be able to provide clothing, a roof, and education, you know, uh, for kids. I had um, a woman I encountered at a talk up in South Carolina a few years ago, an older woman, who she and her husband got married right after World War II. That's how old she was. And uh, they told God, whatever, however many children you want to give us, we'll take them. And he was on the GI Bill, so he was going to college, working part-time. She was working full-time. And they got pregnant about six months after they got married, had their first baby. Uh, and then about a year later, she got pregnant with the next baby. She never got pregnant again. She said, we didn't do anything to avoid getting pregnant. We just never got pregnant again. So you also want to make sure as you start out a marriage that you're not interfering with God's plan about when you're going to have your kids. Another couple who used to do Engaged Encounter Weekends got married. They had done NFP. They were going to be fertile on their honeymoon. And they said, what the heck, we're married. So they used those days, and they got pregnant. And everybody said, oh, look, that NFP doesn't work. You're pregnant. They said, no, 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 we knew we're fertile. <laughs> and we are married. Um, and they had a little boy. They never got pregnant again. They were like in their middle 20s. They never got pregnant again. They went through an infertility workup. Nothing was wrong with either one of them. They never got pregnant again. About 11 years later, they adopted a child. So, you know what? If they hadn't used their honeymoon, they might not have had any kids. You know? So, so you don't know. Our plan and God's plan may be two different things. But I honestly don't think that couples who are doing NFP are doing it with the same contraceptive mentality as people who are, have an IUD in or something like that. And they say, there's no way we can get pregnant. Yeah, you know, these were all like big reviews you know, that I presented, but you know what, it all boils down to some concepts. First of all, the concept that came from Planned Parenthood was that children should be planned and wanted. That children are bad unless you plan to have a child. And I, I hate to say, but this whole industry is big money. Big, big money. So, money talks. And that really, natural family planning, you know, you take a class and that's it. You don't have to pay for anything more after that. But, um, but you know, it is—it's big money. Yeah. 
it's, it's really a shame. And I didn't appreciate it till I got into all this on how much harm I've been doing to women all these years, you know, because I, I, and I think most people who are in this field aren't doing that intentionally. They think they're doing something good, uh, but some of the greatest uh, evils are done with the best of intentions. Well, I won't say there is no, but I would say very few. Yeah. You know, and most of the articles on blood clots and pulmonary emboli and heart attack and stroke are in internal medicine journals. They're not in, I presented one from an OBGYN, OBGYN journal, but most of them are in non-OBGYN journals because I think they don't want us to see that these other complications go on. Yes. Yeah. Well, I showed you. Well, I showed you like Vioxx that was taken off the market and the risk that it had of heart attack. What you have to make a decision on is the the disease that you're treating serious enough that it's worth taking the risk. In most of the case when women are on birth control pills, they're not treating a disease; they're preventing a pregnancy. Fertility is not a disease. Infertility is a disease. So you have to say, is that worth the risk of possibly dying? Uh, you know, especially the, the NuvaRing IUD, when the, the whole big article that was in Vanity Fair in the beginning of 2014, families came forth and said, we didn't know she was using this. We would have told her, don't, don't do this, don't use this. And these were, the one was an Olympic uh, downhill skier, uh, and one of them was uh, worked uh, with uh, Senator McCain in Washington, D.C. I mean, these were prominent women that for the first time, because they were prominent and they had some influence, family members were able to come out and say, hey, do you know this is going on? My daughter didn't know this. We didn't know this. Because people ought to be informed. I mean, and women aren't informed. You know, if you were informed, if you find out that it can cause a blood clot, cause a heart attack, can cause you to abort a baby that you didn't know you conceived, would you use it? You ought to be given that choice. Yes. Well, I, I will tell you from personal experience, when I have patients who come in with breast cancer and they're younger, they always say, oh, it was from the birth control pill. They know in the back of their head they think that's what it was. But no, everything is not a carcinogen. And this is something you're choosing to take that could cause you to develop cancer. Yes. Asbestos. <laughs> Asbestos, you know? so. If there is any asbestos in the ceiling, I can tell you the EPA would be here. There is no asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> Father only had to take it out. <laughs> but the EPA would be here. You'd be wearing heavy masks. They'd be taking it out, dispose it in some secret place for asbestos. You know, it's the same as asbestos. Oh, good. Yeah, ninety-eight percent. Yeah. Well, there are some methods a little bit better if you have irregular cycles. There will probably be a little bit more abstinence with irregular cycles. But uh, I don't know that anybody specifically has studied just irregular periods. Um, but I teach the Marquette program, which is out of Marquette University. It uses three different things. It uses mucus observation. Sorry, guys. Temperature, basal body temperature, and also a fertility monitor, uh, the clear blue fertility monitor, which can't be used by itself, but it identifies the day of ovulation with 99% accuracy. And we're also look, doing another study now looking at a different type of test strip that can be used by itself that also has a sensitivity close to the monitor would be less expensive. So, um, yeah, so there's new technology all the time. Georgetown came out with some very simple methods of NFP 
they did it with uh, federal USAID money, and they had two programs. One of them was the two-day method. The woman learns how to make mucus observations every day, and she just keeps track of what she has today and yesterday. So if she says at the end of today, I didn't have any mucus today, I didn't have any mucus yesterday, they're infertile at the end of today. 96.5% effective, just doing that. They also developed uh, cycle beads, which is a standard days method based on women having regular cycles, 26 to 32 days apart, and it's actually uh, like a necklace. And you put the ring on the first red bead, which is the first day of your period. The first seven days of your cycle, you're infertile. From day eight to day 19, you're fertile, which sounds like a lot, but you know, if you've got a 29-day cycle, it's okay. And then on day 20 on, you're infertile. And that is 95% effective. And you don't even have to study anything that you're doing. You just have to keep track of it every day. So simple methods for people. Works for anybody, but it also helps people who don't speak English well. It'd be hard to teach them things. And uh, people who aren't well-educated. So, yes. Mobile apps. There are lots of mobile apps out right now for charting cycles. As a matter of fact, it used to be only 35% of women really knew the first day of the last period. But now with these mobile apps, everybody pulls out their phone, oh, this is where it was. Kindara, Kindara is a great mobile app uh, for that. I would say it can be applied to NFP. But there isn't any mobile app that I would rely on as an NFP app. No, the Marquette people are develop, have developed an app, but I'll tell you, um, so much is tied up in the legal sphere. You know, the Marquette lawyers want to make sure that by doing this, they're not going to get sued if somebody gets pregnant, you know, unnecessarily. But Kindar is a good way to do it. Yes, Father? Well, you know, like if you go to your OBGYN and they say, we want to put you on the pill, say, you know what, I don't want to be on the pill. That doesn't always work. Um, and then you can say, just pretend I can't take the pill. Pretend I've had a stroke. How would you, how would you treat me? you know, instead. Um, I saw a patient just recently who found me on her insurance plan, and she came in with a hormonal problem, and everybody kept trying to put her on the pill, and I said, how did you find me? And she said, I just found you on my insurance, and then when I read your website, I said, oh, I need to go see her, and I read the review. But, um, you know, I, the problem is that birth control pills and contraceptives make up about a third of an OBGYN's daily practice, and, um, I, you know, being part of the Catholic Medical Association, uh, I think all the NFP-only OBGYNs in the country who are Catholic are part of that organization because we come together for mutual support and all that. But when I was prescribing contraception, I used to go home at the end of the day and think, did I help anybody today? You know, it was just handing out birth control pills all day long. Now, I go home, and it's great. I've helped all kinds of women with hormonal problems, with pain problems, and, and I didn't cover it up with birth control pills. So, But I don't know. We have to pray for doctors for a lot of reasons, but we have to pray for doctors. I pray every day uh, for other OBGYNs that they will have a change of heart. But there are a lot of young medical students today who are on fire for the faith. It's beautiful. We have a, a student section in the Catholic Medical Association for Catholic medical students. And these guys are a great example for us. I mean, they're just, they're going into medical school and they're going to live out their faith in medical school. It's really beautiful. And not necessarily in a Catholic medical school. Yes, never works. They've tried male hormonal contraceptives, things like that. No, men, will never, men never agree to it. They don't want to feel differently. <laughs> I know, decreased libido. <laughs> Weight gain. Weight gain. 
breast lumps? <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah. Yeah, you wonder, why, why would you put women through that? And a lot of guys, at, you know, come to that realization because they don't, they don't want their wives to be hurt by these things. Well, you know, it, always, it wasn't always this way. I mean, yes, every once in a while kids strayed, but it wasn't as diffuse as it is in the general population today, and contraception is what's facilitated it. Because if a girl is on birth control pills or some other contraceptive, there's no reason for her not to have sex because she can't get pregnant, she thinks, but she may get pregnant anyway. Uh, but I think theology of the body is the key for kids to understand why they shouldn't be doing this to begin with. When, when boys and girls understand their temples of the Holy Spirit, how, how mysterious the marital act is, how you want to save yourself for your spouse, uh, the importance of marriage. If you want a stable marriage, you want to save yourself until marriage if possible. Then I think kids would realize it. Uh, actually, even teaching natural family planning to teenage girls helps them return to chastity because they understand their fertility then. Say, wow, I want to protect this. You know, I don't want to do something to harm it. But no, uh, especially the long-acting uh, contraceptives, the implants, the um, IUDs are being pushed on young kids. I can't imagine putting an IUD in a 13-year-old. Oh my gosh, why would you do that to him? You know, it's, it's a shame. We'll put him on Depakovera. Do I see a lot of women who used to be on birth control and they can't have kids? Yeah, I told you about that one woman who wanted her doctor to take out the IUD, although she has been able to have a baby. But in that six-week period, I had two other women come in. who ha I pulled their IUDs out. They weren't able to get pregnant. We did a what's called a hysterosalpingogram. You inject dye in the uterus to see if the tubes are open. Their tubes were blocked. So they're not going to be able to have kids. Their tubes are blocked. So, yeah, you know, you don't, uh, don't think about the possible consequences. But also, often women aren't informed of those possible consequences. They need to think differently. Uh, one, of the, one of the types of birth control pills did appear in studies to improve acne because it's a high estrogen effect pill. Um, but one, one thing that helps kids with acne is to come off dairy products. Stop eating milk and cheese and yogurt. I mean, we have so much dairy in our diet. Civilizations, she's nodding her head back there. Civilizations that don't eat cow, uh, cow's milk products, they have very low incidence of acne. But in the U.S., 50% of people have acne at some point in time. So I tell girls to come off um, dairy products, and that works in most cases. Sometimes you have to put them on a, a, a medication called spironolactone, which has an effect on the glands in your face and hair follicles and all that, and that reduces acne too. And the dermatologist will use that. Increasingly, will use that. Oh yeah, and what about in natural family planning to achieve a pregnancy? Lots of times, because women don't understand when they're ovulating, they may be using the wrong days of their cycle. Um, I have, it's amazing, once we started testing the monitor, we found so many women who actually were ovulating on day 19, 20, 21 of their cycle. They had 32, 33 day cycles. And I had one couple that um, uh, came to me because they weren't getting pregnant and they found out that they were ovulating on day 19, 20, 21. Once they learned that, they were able to achieve a pregnancy. They were focusing on day 12, 13, 14, 15, they were pooped out by day 19, 20, 21. <laughs> so they weren't able to get pregnant. So, uh, so it, it can be very helpful. Yeah. But also it's a great GYN record. You know, I have hundreds of women who use NFP coming to see me and they bring their charts in sometimes for 10 years. And, you know, if they come in with abnormal bleeding or some other problem with their cycle, looking at the chart is a big clue as to what's going on with them gynecologically. 
Well, you've been a great audience. One more question, and then Father's going to wrap it up. Yeah, they probably think I'm really weird. <laughs> but you know, I, I maintain a wonderful relationship with my four former partners uh, because we called to be charitable. I never wagged my finger at somebody said, "What are you doing that?" Um, and uh, and actually, another Catholic guy converted because of our conversations, and I prayed and fasted for for several years. Uh, Dr. Jerry Sotomayor is also an NFP only OB/GYN, unfortunately, speaks Spanish. Um, and I've been working on another guy too, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if he's going to change. But you know, it's, you just have to be the sweetest, most competent individual you can be, and hope they'll say, "Wow, you know, she's making a living, and you know, she's doing this weird stuff." Maybe there is something to it. Thank you, Doctor, for coming and speaking to us tonight. Uh, we did record this, so we're going to put it on the podcast. Uh, so it'll be available for you to listen to again if you were unable to get notes down or something or you heard something that you wanted to, uh, you know, think about. Some of it very disturbing. I don't want to think about some of it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for coming. We Welcome really appreciate it. This is the kind of thing, especially at an institution like Georgia Tech, uh, the science behind something is actually you know, very attractive to us. Uh, we want to hear it um, and not have it just kind of glossed over. So thank you for your commitment to the teachings of the church, your commitment to your patients, to their health, and your generosity with the students here this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Go watch the Duke game. <laughs>